So welcome to part three and the conclusion of the Sick Kid Murder series. If you haven't listened to parts one and two yet, I recommend going back and listening to both before continuing this episode. This series of episodes contains graphic depictions of infant deaths, medical terminology, and descriptions of autopsies that may disturb some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. In the last episode, I took you through the details of each of the most suspicious of the baby deaths and why it was determined there should be an investigation. In this episode, I'll be taking you through the investigation, who was suspected and why, as well as the status of this case as it stands today. It's March 27, 1981, only a few days after baby Justin Cook has died. A woman is brought in and charged with the murders of four babies. Who is this woman and how does she fit into all of this? Let's go back a few days. On March 22nd, the police are aware of Cook's digoxin levels, that it caused his death, and the nursing team on Ward 4A is relieved of its duties until at least March 25th. The entire investigation was kept quiet. The police didn't want the word getting out that they were investigating the deaths. At this point, police know four babies died of high digoxin levels. This in itself is concerning. Regarding Justin, they know he was on constant nursing care the night he died, and the nurse on duty was Susan Ellis. There was one nursing team on duty for all four of those deaths. Janitors, cardiac fellows, and residents weren't typically on the wards after midnight. Some residents on call slept at the hospital, but not on the ward itself. Hospital doctors agreed all four died from digoxin toxicity, and it was administered via IV, causing terminal symptoms that happened almost immediately. The next day, police inquired about the other deaths on the ward dating back to July of 1980 and requested the medical records for all of them. They also obtained the nursing assignment book and ward info on nursing stats, and according to these, police discovered Susan Ellis was in charge of care of Kevin, Alana, and constant care of Justin. She was also on shift during all of the other deaths in question, except for Janice Estrella. There was strong evidence these babies were deliberately overdosed with digoxin. The evidence was overwhelming in the case of Justin's death. From all this information, it was concluded that constant nursing care meant just that, constant and never leaving the baby's side. The issue with this is the nurse on constant care was relieved for breaks and lunches, which can run for up to an hour. During this time, the team leader takes over and reports any events to the care nurse for her to document. No documentation is done by the team lead who relieves the care nurse. It's not documented when the breaks and lunches are taken or for how long. It was also determined the maximum time from administration to symptoms was about 15 minutes. In the case of Justin, his onset of symptoms was at 3.45 a.m., meaning the overdose of digoxin would have had to been given at 3.30 a.m. This placed Susan in the direct care of Justin at this time. Susan also had Alana and Kevin under her care when the onset of symptoms occurred. Kevin was actually on Ward 4B at the time, and Susan had been assigned to that ward on the night he died. 
She was the one who charted the terminal events for both babies and the period prior. Although Susan was not present for the death of Janice Estrella, she was on duty until 7.45 p.m. And due to complications with Estrella's IV line, there was evidence to suggest Nellis could have overdosed the baby before she left for the night. The evidence supporting this was it was documented there were some issues with Janice's IV line going interstitial. This just means the needle came out of the vein and was sitting in the space above or below the vein, making it ineffective. This incident happened twice, once at 4.45 p.m., placed back in the vein at 6 p.m., and the other shortly thereafter, placed back in the vein at 7.30 p.m. So this could account for the slower transfusion of the drug and taken hours to reach its full fatal effects. Doctors agreed this was a viable theory. It was becoming clear to investigators there was one person responsible, and the evidence was pointing towards Susan Ellis. The suspicion was not unreasonable and was solidified more when quoted by Dr. Fowler regarding Justin's death, quote, Susan had a strange look on her face that was not in keeping with a nurse who had just had a person die that was under her care, unquote. Now, just because he said this does not make her the killer. She is an experienced nurse and had dealt with many deaths. In my opinion, it wouldn't be abnormal for her to be unemotional. But police just took his statement as more evidence. Just to be clear, Dr. Fowler wasn't suspicious of Nellis. None of the doctors or nurses on the wards were. Who would suspect a colleague at a highly accredited hospital would be intentionally overdosing innocent infants and killing them as a result? The following day, a meeting took place between the police and the assistant crown attorney. Before laying any charges or arresting anyone, they wanted to make sure the lawyer was aware of their intentions. They went over all of the findings and evidence and advised all of the nurses would be interviewed, but if nothing came from those interviews, they had every intention on arresting Susan and charging her with the death of Justin Cook. At first, the assistant crown wasn't convinced. But once the medical evidence was explained in detail, he agreed there were reasonable grounds not only to suspect Nellis, but to arrest her. At first glance, it does seem like they honed in on one person, and it was over fairly quickly. But the fact that police were able to thoroughly investigate such a complex case and narrow down a suspect so quickly is impressive. This was a foreign field for most of the police officers, and they used their resources not only to gather more evidence, but also to fully understand the technical medical nature of the case. The only thing that wasn't clear was if the evidence gathered was enough to hold a charge against Susan. It was reported Susan was informed of the investigation while on vacation visiting family. She was told to immediately write down everything she could remember from the night of Justin's death. Susan was annoyed at being interrupted by this while she was on her days off and didn't make any notes until she returned to Toronto the next day. When she got home, she told her roommate about the inquiry into the death, as he was a third-year law student who also had a brother and sister-in-law who were both in the legal field. He told her if police questioned her to ask for legal counsel. He called his brother, who gave him two numbers of lawyers who had experience in nursing matters. He passed those numbers along to Susan on the morning of March 25th, the day she would unknowingly be interviewed. She wrote the numbers down and placed them in the pocket of her rope. That same morning at 10.30 a.m., 
police knocked on her door. It was planned by police to go in teams of two to interview the three other members of the trainer team before the lead investigators were to go interview Susan. If nothing new or groundbreaking came from those interviews, they had every intention of arresting Alice. It seems to me like the interviews with the other members was just a formality rather than a tool to gather information. From the interviews with the other nurses, police learned the team lead, Phyllis Trainer relieved Susan for her breaks and dinner that evening. No notes or times were noted. They were also informed that nurses from Ward 4B often came over to Ward A to visit patients or staff. This concludes several people were in Justin's room that night. Phyllis Trainer told police Susan's last break of that early morning concluded at 3 a.m. Two of the other nurses told police that they had also been in Justin's room that night attending to other patients and guessed the time to be approximately within 15 minutes of the onset of his critical symptoms, but both had left upon Nellis's return from her break. This information had no impact on police. They concluded Nellis still had ample opportunity and was alone with the baby during the critical 15 minutes before the onset of critical symptoms. Police felt that the others were very forthcoming during the interviews and believed they were innocent, although their timelines didn't quite match up. Following these interviews, police set off to interview Susan. Going into this meeting, police knew they were going to be arresting her unless she had significant information that would change their mind. The interview, if you can even call it that, was quick. Police knocked on Alice's door. Susan answered still in her robe as it was only about... 10 10 30 a.m they cautioned her to make her aware anything she says may be used against her she confirmed she understands the caution and that she may be charged the first question asked by police was if she'd like to explain why justin was given digoxin susan immediately asked for a lawyer as she was instructed to do so by her roommate she pulls out the two numbers she was given earlier that morning from her robe pocket Police then cautioned her again and put her under arrest on the charge of murder. She was advised to put some clothes on and was taken by police at approximately 11.45 a.m. At this point, you're probably thinking what I'm thinking. These cops were so focused on Susan that no matter what she did or said, they were going to arrest her. This puts her in an impossible position. She either refuses to answer and request a lawyer, or she risks having what she says used against her. The thing is, she could have just explained to police what had actually happened that evening. If she is innocent, and there is an explanation as to why Justin had digoxin in his system, she could have just answered the question. If they were satisfied with her answer, the arrest may have been avoided. According to the inquiry, she wasn't arrested for asking for a lawyer. She has every right to do so, but because police were already extremely suspicious of her and she failed to provide an answer, she essentially dug her own grave. Susan was taken into custody where she met with a lawyer who wasn't much help. Police interviewed her again where she gave a few yes or no answers and declined to answer other questions. 
She was taken to the West Detention Center before being charged with three additional murder charges on March 27th. She was released on bail on Monday, March 30th. The investigation wasn't over. There were still more people to interview and more information to be gathered. Before the preliminary hearing began, there were 87 statements obtained from witnesses, doctors, nurses, parents, basically anyone who was around during the period in question. What came from those interviews was significant to the case. Although the circumstantial evidence against Susan was still strong, it was discovered that more people had contact with the babies than originally thought. During the preliminary hearing, it was going to be either determined if there was enough evidence to proceed with the murder conviction and stand trial in Superior Court or not. If not, no further persecution could continue, and she would be free to go. The hearing began on January 4, 1982, and lasting until May 21st of the same year. It was a long process, so I'll summarize for you. The argument was essentially there was one killer, assumed to be Nellis, for all four of the babies in question. The Crown also proposed there wasn't just four babies in question. It was found that 24 babies in the time in question had died under similar circumstances. The problem arose concerning the death of Janice Estrella. The evidence presented determined Nellis had no access to Janice for at least 20 hours during which the fatal dose was supposedly administered. There were two other nurses in the constant care of the baby during this time. Susan wasn't even at the hospital. So if it wasn't her, then they can conclude she was innocent in all of the deaths. The persecution attempted to turn it around by saying if she was able to obtain the drug and kill the other babies easily, she may have found a way to get access to Janice. There was one single baby who saved Susan Ellis from the murder charges. Stephanie Lombardo, another infant discussed earlier, was exhumed and tested for digoxin a year after her death and a month or so before the preliminary inquiry began. Digoxin was found in her system, but she was not prescribed the drug. With employment records from the hospital, it was determined Susan was on vacation the entire time Stephanie was in the hospital in December 1980. This caused the persecution's case to crumble. On May 21st, 1982, the judge discharged Susan. His decision was based on the evidence the Crown presented. If all four babies were killed by the same person and Nellis didn't have access to Janice, then she couldn't have killed the other three babies either. The theory the Crown presented that Susan is the person who killed all four babies is variable with the events leading up to the death of Stephanie Lombardo. The judge determined there wasn't enough evidence to hold up a conviction in the superior courts, and her case was dismissed. This was, of course, not the end of it. Following this decision, the government of Ontario appointed the Grange Inquiry to examine the events leading to an extreme number of deaths during that period. In the end of it all, which took over a year from beginning to end, Judge Grange concluded he agreed with the preliminary judge's decision regarding the charges against Nellis. It wasn't the end for Susan either. She went on to file a civil suit against the province for wrongful conviction and ultimately settled for about $190,000. So what did happen during those nine months? Well, that's still up for debate. There are a few theories though. It was suspected by some that Phyllis Trainer had something to do with the deaths or killed them herself. 
She was the head nurse leading that team on Ward 4A. It was discovered Trainer was on duty for all of the deaths in question. Two nurses even testified they saw Phyllis give an unauthorized injection into Alana Miller's IV bag only a few hours before that baby died. Nothing came of these testimonies. Trainer denied the behavior when questioned. No charges were ever laid due to lack of evidence. She resigned from the hospital after the Grange Inquiry report was published. She has since passed. The other theory, and in my opinion the most absurd, is that of the quote-unquote rubber poisoning theory. This idea rules out foul play completely. A doctor by the name of Gavin Hamilton even wrote a book called The Nurses Are Innocent, The Digoxin Poison Fallacy, about his support in this theory. Basically, because the digoxin testing was so complicated at the time of these deaths, a substance that was digoxin-like could account for the false positive high levels and ultimately the deaths. It was thought this digoxin-like toxic substance came from the rubber tubing used for IV lines as well as syringes and was slowly infused into the babies who were on IVs. This could cause an adverse reaction, causing death, and also would show up as digoxin upon testing. I've linked his book in the episode notes if you're curious in learning more about this theory. I just want to note these deaths are still unsolved. It was never officially determined that foul play was involved or it was this rubber poisoning. The Grange Inquiry put a list together of the deaths that still had enough evidence to conclude the deaths was caused by digoxin toxicity, deaths highly suspicious of digoxin overdose but no toxicology data to support it, and deaths caused by natural causes. All of the babies' deaths discussed in the last episode were on the first list. Justin Cook, Alana Miller, Kevin Pascai, Janice Estrella, along with Kristen Inwood, Jordan Hines, Stephanie Lombardo, and Jesse Boulanger were all concluded to have sufficient evidence to deem their deaths as caused by digoxin overdose. Unfortunately, there wasn't enough evidence to hold a charge against Susan, as I mentioned earlier. The charges were dropped against her, and there was insufficient evidence to lay charges against Phyllis Trainer. After the inquiry, the case went cold. This case was extremely complicated and interesting, to say the least. I spent the last few months reading everything I can get my hands on about the hospital itself and the details on the deaths surrounding the time in question. The severe increase in deaths in those nine months makes it difficult to conclude anything other than foul play. Again, this is just my opinion. It seems too convenient that once the drug is controlled and locked away, the deaths stop. Either way, a lot of innocent children died when they could have lived a relatively decent life or at least a longer life. Whether these deaths were murders or caused by a toxic substance in the rubber tubing, it looks like we may never know. If you have any information related to this case, please contact Toronto Police Services, RCMP, or Crime Stoppers. As always, all the contact info will be in the episode notes. This has been the conclusion of the Sick Kids Murders. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any thoughts or opinions on this case, I'd love to hear them. Feel free to leave a comment or DM me on Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode, please go rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. 
If you're not already, go follow me at Cold Canada Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. You can find Cold Canada on your preferred podcast platform. Just search Cold Canada Unsolved Murders or follow the link in the episode notes. My name is Heather Curran and this has been part three of the mini-series of the Sick Kid Murders. I'll be back next week with a brand new episode.